Whose image do you conjure up when you think of an influential woman? It might be a teacher, an executive, a politician. It might even be your own mother. And we don't often stop to think about the powerful place women hold in our society, particularly at a time when they still have to struggle to achieve fair treatment in many areas of that society. But their ability to call attention to issues that matter to all of us is something that has deep roots. For half a century, Sarah Josepha Hale was the most influential woman in America. As editor of Godey's Ladies Book, Hale was the leading cultural arbiter for the growing nation. Women and many men turned to her for advice on what to read, what to cook, how to behave, and most importantly, what to think. Twenty years before the Declaration of Women's Rights in Seneca Falls, New York, Sarah Josepha Hale used her own powerful pen to promote women's right to an education, to work, and to manage their own money. There's hardly an aspect of 19th century culture in which Hale did not figure prominently as a pathbreaker. She was one of the first editors to promote American authors writing on American themes. Her stamp of approval advanced the reputations of such authors as Edgar Allan Poe, Harriet Beecher Stowe, and Nathaniel Hawthorne. Her accomplishments were impressive, even by today's standards. She wrote the first anti-slavery novel. She compiled the first women's history book. And she penned the most recognizable verse in the English language. Mary had a little lamb. Americans' favorite holiday, Thanksgiving, wouldn't exist without Hale. She conducted a decades-long campaign to make it happen. And Abraham Lincoln took her up on her suggestion in 1863 and proclaimed the first national Thanksgiving. Most of the women's equity issues that Hale championed have been achieved, or nearly so. But women's roles in the domestic sphere are arguably less valued today than in Hale's era. Her beliefs about women's obligations to family and moral leadership and the education of women for work outside of the home were an important part of her identity. And these principles still resonate today. Have you ever admired a leader and wondered just what it is that makes her who she is? How he came to embrace the things that advanced him? Welcome to Timeless Leadership, where we look at the principles that define success. This is a show for leaders at all stages of their careers who aspire to understand what it truly means to be a leader. And who is a leader? Dolly Parton said, If your actions inspire others to dream more, learn more, do more, and become more, you are a leader. Together, we'll explore key principles, not only in the sense of fundamentals, but also in the ethical sense, the habits, character traits, and virtues that form the backbone of leadership, principles that are just as relevant and essential in the 21st century as they were 
in the first century. This is Timeless Leadership. Hello and welcome to the third season of Timeless Leadership, where we explore principles and virtues that accompany successful and admirable leaders. I'm your host, Scott Monty. Now, feel free to listen and to follow Timeless Leadership wherever you get your podcasts. But could you do me a favor while you're listening? If you could please share this episode with your network, your recommendation is really the highest praise that I could ask for. So I'd appreciate it if you gave that a shot. And I hope by now that you subscribe to the Timeless and Timely newsletter. That's where I regularly write about leadership and communication with a lens on history and literature. And you can find a link to that in the show notes. The newsletter captures my thoughts on human nature and leadership in our ever-changing world. And it also provides some of the principles that I use in my speeches and my executive coaching services. If I can help you or your team, please email me at timeless at scottmonte.com. I'll put a link to that in the show notes as well. In this episode, we're going to be talking with author Melanie Kirkpatrick about Sarah Josepha Hale one of the most influential women in the 19th century. Melanie Kirkpatrick is a writer, journalist, and senior fellow at the Hudson Institute. She contributes reviews and commentary to various publications, including the opinion pages of the Wall Street Journal, for which she worked for 30 years. Melanie joined the Wall Street Journal in 1980, working as a copy editor on the overnight desk in Hong Kong. She rose to become the newspaper's op-ed editor, a member of the editorial board, and deputy editor of the newspaper's editorial pages. During her career at the Journal, she also oversaw the launch of OpinionJournal.com and other online products. She managed the editing and production of books published by the Journal and served as a member of the board of the Dow Jones Newspaper Fund. She received the 2001 Mary Morgan Hewitt Award for Women in Journalism from the Friends of the East-West Center in Honolulu. The award recognizes a journalist who has demonstrated commitment, hard work, and expanding influence throughout her career. Her books include Thanksgiving, The Holiday at the Heart of the American Experience, published in 2016, and Escape from North Korea, The Untold Story of Asia's Underground Railroad, published in 2012. And the book we're going to talk with her about today, Lady Editor, Sarah Josepha Hale, and the Making of the Modern American Woman. Melanie Kirkpatrick, welcome to Timeless Leadership. It's wonderful to be with you, Scott. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. So, you know, Sarah Josepha Hale, uh, it, first of all, it's not a name that rolls off the tongue, um, nor is it a household name yet. You know, you think about some of the women in American history that every school child knows, uh, you know, Betsy Ross, Susan B. Anthony, Dolly Madison, Abigail Adams, um, Harriet Tubman, Harriet Beecher Stowe. And yet Sarah Josepha Hale, I think, eclipses all of them. Why don't we know more about her as fluidly as we know about the others? 
She's with the exception of Betsy Ross. I think she had an influence on all of the other women, a big influence on all the other women you mentioned, especially because of her dedication and promotion of education for for women. Um, why don't we know her? Well, I think there are a couple of reasons. One is that um, late in life, she uh, wrote about suffrage for women, and she was against it. She thought that women were of a higher moral order than men, and that politics was a dirty business. Who can argue with that? And that women would have more of an impact if they stood above the fray and advised uh, men uh, who were doing the dirty work of, of politics. So, uh, and she also was in her 70s and 80s by then. So, you know, maybe it was just a bridge too far. And in this respect, she was reflecting the, the views of the majority of American women who were against suffrage. Um, even until the end of the 19th century. It wasn't until early in the 20th century um, and that um, uh, the idea really caught on in a big, in a big way. But uh, that's one reason. Uh, another reason is that uh, Godey's Ladies Book, her magazine, which was so immensely influential in the pre-Civil War and Civil War period, after her death, um, changed. And in the 80s, 90s, and it it really became more trivial. And I think people probably forgot about the serious nature of the magazine when she led it. And finally, and this is a personal uh, view, as a former uh, lady editor myself, um, I don't think editors get their due sometimes, that readers uh, don't realize how much influence um, the editor has in shaping public opinion. Uh, you know, we, we think more about the people whose bylines we read than we think about the men and women behind them who are making the editorial decisions and shaping the views of the publication. So uh, that might, that is another reason I think she's not as well known today. Yeah, that, that makes perfect sense. And of course, uh, as you well know, uh, she would have preferred the term editress, right? Yes. <laughs> she, she was very specific about uh, some of the, the connotations uh, of uh, how women were uh, were, were viewed within their roles. I mean, she, she was very specific about gendered roles, and yet she viewed, I think, that uh, men and women were intellectual equals. She acknowledged that men perhaps had superior physical strength, but acknowledged that women were just as clever and just as intelligent as men and really wanted to give women the fair shake to get the same kind of education that men had. Yes, women's intellectual capabilities, she firmly believed and wrote about uh, repeatedly starting in the 1820s. They were equal, uh, but they were not equal when it came to education. So this is why she uh, was such a promoter of education for women. Um, and um she also thought that there were certain professions where women probably were better suited than men. And one of them was teaching. 
When she started out in the 1820s as an editor, uh, women were considered unfit to teach anything, anybody except very, very young kids. You could teach a five, six, seven year old, but after that, it had to be a man. Uh, and she uh, completely disagreed with that and uh, conducted a campaign in the pages of her magazines to encourage women to become teachers. She also encouraged the establishment of normal schools, which are teaching colleges. And uh, she um, she wanted there was a common school movement in that period to get uh, children um, educated in every town across the expanding nation and there certainly weren't enough men to fill those jobs and so she pushed very hard for frontier towns for example to to hire young women as teachers her thought was that they would teach for a few years and then probably get married and um, uh, make way for another wave of young women to be teachers. Well, I mean, in in some ways, um, you know, she's really calling out the importance of women, not only in in school teacher terms, but in in homemaker terms as well. Because a lot of times, uh, when certainly in the frontier towns. There weren't established schools. I mean, people were teaching from home. That, that's back when homeschooling was just the way it was done for many nice. uh, places. So essentially, she was trying to arm women with the information, the intelligence, the wherewithal to raise model citizens of the future, to, to make sure that America became a wiser and better place with each successive generation. <laughs> Yes, that's that's right, Scott. She was a very patriotic woman. She was born in 1788, the year before Washington took office as our first president. Her father was a, a veteran of the Revolution. Um, her husband's father had been a sentry at the Battle of Bunker Hill. And uh, she thought that um, it was mostly up to mothers to prepare their kids for life, um, to be uh, civic education. We would call it civic education today, uh, began at home. And so it was very important for women to be educated if they were going to uh, teach the future uh, generations of Americans. And by this, she meant men, girls and boys. Uh, She herself had been taught at home with her brothers and sister by their mother. And uh, her brother Horatio, who was very close to her in age, went off to Dartmouth to uh, uh, study. And, of course, she had to stay at home. Um, They lived in New Hampshire. But he would come home on the holidays and teach her everything he was taught at Dartmouth. So she got the equivalent of of a a college education thanks to him. Um, She was one of the best educated women of her day. Well, and... Her uh, her father ran a tavern, so I'm sure she saw the the practicalities of running a business. Uh, her husband was a lawyer, so she saw the ins and outs of uh, the legal profession. 
but it was it was by necessity that she took on the education of her own children. Do you want to talk a little bit about her kind of tragic circumstances and how she kind of forged a different path than women who were widowed at that time typically took? Yeah. Uh, when she was in her early 30s, her husband died suddenly. And she was left uh, nearly penniless with four children and a fifth on the way. She was determined to uh, not just keep her family together. A lot of widows in her situation would um, send the kids individually off to different relatives to live where they would be cared for. But she wanted to keep her family together. More than that, she wanted to... Uh, educate the children in the manner uh, that she and her husband had had long wished. And she didn't know how she was going to be able to do this. Her husband had been a Mason and the free, uh, a Freemason and the Freemasons in Newport, New Hampshire got together and decided to set her up in a millinery shop. That's a hat making shop. She hated it. Absolutely hated it. Needlework back then was uh, really the only respectable occupation open to uh, um, a woman of, of her background. But she started to write. Her husband had thought she was a good writer. That, that, that memory encouraged her. And the Masons uh, agreed to publish her first book, which is a book of poetry. And then her second book was a novel called Northwood, um, an anti-slavery story, and a, a, a publisher in Boston published it, and it, it was successful. And it came to the attention of a man in Boston who was setting up uh, uh, an intellectual magazine for women, and he got in touch with her out of the blue and asked her to edit it. And so off she went to Boston Um and with uh, taking with her the condemnation of a lot of her friends from back home in, in Newport, New Hampshire, who said uh, she wasn't going to succeed. No, who ever heard of a woman being edited editor of a successful magazine? And they expected her to come back home with her tail between her legs and uh, uh, prove them right. But of course, as we know, she was very successful. All of her kids were very well educated. Um, and she worked very, very hard to come up with the funds and the connections that uh, made that possible for them. Mm. And her approach to editing a magazine was far different than what Louis Godey's uh, uh, philosophy was. He was, a, I think you, you, uh, you called him a scissors editor? Is yeah, that a scissors editor. Mr. Godey uh, was younger than Sarah Hale, and he was a... Um, a young publisher in Philadelphia, um, and but he read uh, and he published his own ladies' magazine. Um, he, but he read the magazine that Hale was editing in Boston, and really wanted her to edit his magazine. But uh, she didn't want to move to Philadelphia. So what did Mr. Godey do? He bought her magazine so that uh, he could get her as uh, the editor. And they made an agreement that she could stay in Boston until her um, uh, younger, youngest son graduated from Harvard. And then uh, she moved to Philadelphia. 
But yeah, uh, uh, Godey was what they were what was called a scissors editor. At least he started out that way, and uh, this was typical of most periodicals of the day in America. He would cut and paste, cut articles out of British publications or French publications or um, newspapers and paste them into his magazine uh, uh, and published them as his own stuff. Uh, of course, without credit, without payment, there wasn't any copyright um, that prevented him from doing this. Uh, but he bought into Hale's argument that um, uh, America needed a its own um, literary culture. Uh, Hale, as I say, was married just after the revolution, uh, before Washington took office. And she believed that um, the 13 colonies had been unified politically, but not culturally, and that the new nation needed to develop its own culture outside of British culture. So um, one of the things she did in her magazine was publish American authors writing on American topics. This seems like an obvious point today. Of course, Americans want to read Americans and uh, about America. But back then, uh, it was uh, not so. And so uh, she set out to publish original authors, uh, original articles by American authors. She published a lot of women. She published um, uh, and um, developed, helped to develop the careers of many now very famous authors, such as Edgar Allan Poe and Nathaniel Hawthorne. Um, so her idea was that this common literature, poetry, short stories, would uh, travelogues. Harriet Beecher Stowe wrote uh, travelogues for uh, uh, Hale long before she was Harriet Beecher Stowe, you know, thir- 20 years before Uncle Tom's ha- ha- Cabin was published. Um, so she really had an impact on the kind of um magazine journalism that was um, uh, published during her day. Now, you mentioned before uh, that she was anti-suffrage. And similarly, her first novel was concerning slavery. And if we look at the solution that she proposed in the novel – to slavery, and it was one of the solutions that was being bandied about at the time. This was the uh, eighteen late eighteen twenties, early eighteen thirties, or so. So certainly before the Civil War, uh, the solution was: well, let's send uh, these these enslaved people, or formerly enslaved people, to Africa. Right. Um, and um, her first novel uh, didn't write about this, but her second novel on slavery did, okay. which came out in uh, the early 1850s. Okay. It was it was called Mr. Peyton's Experiments. Okay. And his Mr. Peyton was a slave owner, the story goes, and he wished to free his slaves, but he uh, um, was very conscientious and he wanted to make sure that uh, these um, former slaves would succeed in life. And the question was, um, what would be the best way to help them? He sent one group to Canada, uh, which, um, of course, had uh, did not have slavery because it was part of the British Empire. He sent another group to um, um, a city in America. And uh, in both cases, 
the former slaves were very unhappy. They faced discrimination. They couldn't get good jobs, et cetera, et cetera. And finally, he set upon the solution of sending them to um, what is now Liberia, to Africa. Um, and there they um, managed to succeed. Now, um, and this was Pale's solution. It was totally impractical because uh, there's no way that um, you could send the entire population of freed slaves um, to Africa in any systematic way. But it did reflect her view which was accurate, that uh, freed slaves would find it tremendously challenging uh, to succeed in white America. So um, uh, I think that is, you know, it was not a particularly popular solution in America, but um, there were a number of people who supported what was called colonization. Yeah, and I know that was discussed as late as uh, uh, by the time the Emancipation Proclamation was uh, signed. You know, hmm. it was certainly in play. Um, and, you know, what strikes me about Hale is that um, as, as progressive as some of her ideas may have been, she worked within the, the guidelines or the, the boundaries, the realities of her time. And I think that's why she was so influential. She didn't uh, really try to butt up against uh, impracticalities. She wasn't a troublemaker, right? She did things in uh, very convincing ways and, and had influence over uh, many different movements throughout society. You're right, Scott. She, um, um, uh, you're right up to a point. She was not a troublemaker for sure. She was always a lady. Uh, even people who disagreed with the um, points of view that she expressed would say things about how congenial she was. And she wasn't a flamethrower. <laughs> but she was um, very emphatic and she was indefatigable, especially on issues having to do with women. Uh, and she got positively fiery on the subject of um, women and property rights. Uh, back when she started out, um, if a woman got married, she had to hand over all of her property rights to her husband um, under the law of the day. And uh, she thought that was outrageous and demeaning. And she um, uh, wrote about that, as I say, very emphatically. She also, um, when trying to talk to men in her magazines, would do so in a very, especially at the beginning of her career, in a very cheerful way. She would say, look, we're not going to, we're not asking to do anything to, um, uh, diminish uh, male authority. We uh, just think women, you know, uh, deserve it too. Read our magazines. You won't find anything that you uh, dislike. Now, that wasn't entirely true. When she in Boston uh, um, decided to champion the campaign for a Bunker Hill monument, she was criticized for this. She asked her readers to um, 
send money to support the Bunker Hill Monument. And um, uh, editorialists in Boston responded by condemning her, saying it was the husband's money and the husband's decision to make about what to do with his money. And she replied uh, uh, by citing biblical and classical examples of um, women who uh, helped financially by selling their jewelry or using money from their housekeeping funds to um, help out. And uh, she, you know, she made a difference in that regard, I think. Um, it. Uh, helped my what I write about in Ladies Editor is how, Lady Editor is how she changed attitudes in America about what women were capable of and how society should let women reach their full potential. Um, if uh, as the years went by, she began to write in favor of women becoming doctors. Uh, she had at the beginning of her career, uh, encouraged women to become teachers, but now she moved on to doctors and to many other uh, professions that she thought women could succeed in if, if only uh, the, they had the opportunity to do so. She never asked for special treatment, and I think this is a very important point, especially since it may resonate with um, some of the issues we talk about today having to do with affirmative action or quotas or set-asides. And she didn't want special treatment. She wanted the same treatment. And um, when somebody complained about women um, not having the same uh, salaries as men later in life, she said, well, it's up to you to get the credentials that put you on the same level as, uh, the, as the men. So um, she was, um, um, uh, I, up to your point, she wasn't a troublemaker, but she was um, polite, emphatic, and uh, didn't change her mind very often. <laughs> Once she is set on a course. Yeah. and She didn't back down. No, she didn't. I mean, you know, let, let's, uh, let, let's take an example uh, that you know uh, very well from your first book, and that is uh, the origin of Thanksgiving as a national holiday. She spent 17 years campaigning to get this recognized as a national holiday. Yes. W what did Thanksgiving look like when she started versus when she ended her campaign? Thanksgiving was a, a local or a state holiday. It was called by the governors, and the governors didn't coordinate. So um, uh, Americans would be celebrating on different days, if they celebrated at all. Some years, the governor didn't call for a Thanksgiving day. One of my favorite lines um, in the research I did was somebody in the early 19th century talking about uh, Thanksgiving commented that if you planned your itinerary carefully enough, you could have a good Thanksgiving dinner every week between Election Day and Christmas Day. Um, and they, they didn't have elastic waistbands back then either. That's right. <laughs> but she... Um, 
she thought this is part of her idea of creating a, a national, a common national culture. It, it fit into her vision of a unified America. And especially as, uh, as the Civil War approached, she believed that Americans who sat down on the same together and gave thanks together could, um, uh, be at peace. She thought it would help to avert war. Um, when in the middle of uh, the Civil War, President Lincoln called for a national Thanksgiving Day, it was a very powerful moment because if you look at his proclamation, he talked about America. He, he looked forward to a time when America would be at peace again, and he called on all Americans uh, to give thanks with one heart and one voice, a really beautiful image. Um, and by the way, after Lincoln's assassination, she didn't give up for all the presidents uh, who followed for the rest of her life. She hammered, she wrote to them and uh, encouraged them to um, uh, call a national Thanksgiving Day. And of, of course, they did. Toward the end of her life, she also wanted Congress to pass legislation making Thanksgiving official. Uh, because she realized that uh, not all presidents uh, in years to come might wish to to call a Thanksgiving Day. Uh, and, of course, Congress didn't pass legislation until 1941 when uh, Thanksgiving was finally made official. It's interesting. You, you think about so many of the, the issues that she was passionate about, Thanksgiving, education, work, um, you know, owning your own money, having control of your own money. A lot of those things didn't happen until decades or perhaps a century after her death. I mean, women really didn't have full ownership over their bank accounts until I think the early 1970s by law. I think it depended state by state. But yeah. uh, yes, that uh, that and certainly the idea that uh, husbands uh, should be in charge of the purse strings, even if not um, enshrined in law, was um, something that uh, lingered. Yeah. Um, women, women couldn't even um, control their own earnings. And this is an example that uh, she wrote about um, from Boston um, in the uh, 1830s. It was... Um, she was very concerned with the wives of seamen who were left um, uh, while their husbands went to sea. Uh, they were often left with um, very little money. And if they earned anything, when their husband came home, uh, she wrote about how husbands would sometimes take their wives' hard-earned money and uh, go out on a bender and spend it all on demon drink, um, leaving the wives and the children um, hungry and often you know, homeless. So um, this was another reason she uh, supported uh, property rights for women. Yeah, and you know, it, again and again, you see this um, this wave of philanthropy uh, working through her uh, her influence. Uh, the Bunker Hill uh, Monument certainly that was a philanthropic effort. Um, the uh, the Seamen's Aid Society, um, and 
I, I don't know if it's if it's part of her upbringing. Maybe it's because of uh, the treatment she got from the Freemasons and their generosity in her time of need. What do you think was behind this this sense of philanthropy and philanthropic leadership that uh, Hale yeah. had? You know, that's an, a very interesting question, Scott. And I, I think it has to do with a basic American value. Um, Americans, uh, you know, came to this country and had to fend for themselves and had to help each other. So um, a philanthropic tradition developed. It wasn't like uh, back in the old country where the, you had to do, you, you, you relied on the king and you just may do for yourselves. And so uh, I, she was very much of, of that New England tradition. And uh, I think that's where it came from. Her leadership um, of these two organizations, though, is something new. It was something new back then. And uh, uh, the um, restoration of Mount Vernon, George Washington's home in the 1850s, by um, women who came together to to make this possible, that is often pointed to as the first major philanthropy led by women. But in fact, I think Hale preceded that. And if you look at the correspondence between Hale and uh, the um, woman who was the leader of the Mount Vernon restoration, you can see uh, uh, that um, uh, there was Hale's example, in, at, in particularly having to do with the Bunker Hill Monument, that uh, had an influence on what the women of Mount Vernon did. Yeah, I remember visiting there uh, not too long ago. You know, first one when I was a child, but went a few years ago with our kids. And I remember seeing that black and white photo of a dilapidated uh, portico on Mount Vernon with... with um, you know, scaffolding, holding up the, the oh. eaves. Um, and, and you think that, well, this is the, the homestead of our first president. It should be a sacred place. It should be a place that we, we tend to. And yet, no one really thought of it that way until that time. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, when a, um, a ship on the huts on the uh, Potomac would sail past Mount Vernon, there was a traditioning of, you know, uh, tooting the horn uh, in a gesture of respect. But you're right, the place was in shambles until the women came along and raised the money to um, uh, help restore it to its uh, former glory. You know, it's interesting. I'm I'm thinking back to uh, the remark you made um, a while ago about Women's involvement with politics under under Hale's uh, vision—they um, really are the conscience of society in a lot of ways. And you think back to, oh gosh, even back to ancient Rome. Um, you know, I was a classics major at Boston University, so uh, th- this is the only time I actually get to spout my my arcane knowledge. Um, women were the heart of so many of uh, the households there. They, they actually controlled the purse strings. Uh, you, you look at even the uh, dramatization of I, Claudius and Livia, 
the wife of Augustus was pulling a lot of these strings behind the scenes and whispering into her husband's ear that, you know, offering advice, offering counsel. Uh, it, it seems like Hale really picked up with that and really doubled down on that important role. Hale was familiar with all of those stories, and uh, she was a classicist too. And in, in when she, before she started using her own name in her writing, <clears throat> she had a bunch of um, pen names, and she would draw from classical, famous classical women, uh, women of the classics, I should say, uh, and use, uh, one, you know, select one of their names. So she was familiar with that idea, and she definitely thought that uh, women were of a higher moral character than men. Uh, which brings me to um, her book, little-known book today, called Woman's Record. And this came out in 1853. It was um, the first book of women's history. And it uh, she compiled 2,500 biographies of, of women. And starting with uh, Eve, of, uh, so of Adam and Eve, and moving through biblical history, classical history, and into the present day. It was a remarkable uh, work of scholarship and a what uh, she thought her greatest work. And she actually corresponded with a number of... Um well, let's just call them female celebrities of the time. And, <laughs> yeah. and they gave her uh, some feedback about the book, yeah. didn't they? Yeah, yeah. She would, She knew a lot of the women who were um, uh, still alive, whom she profiled. And so she would contact them and tell them what she was planning to do. Uh, I was very amused that uh, Dr. Elizabeth Blackwell, the first uh, woman to receive a medical degree uh, upon hearing that Hale was going to profile her in a woman's record was appalled and she she thought it would just uh, be so embarrassing to uh, be considered in the same category as all these remarkable women of history uh, but uh, Hale ignored her wishes and and published an item on on Blackwell anyway and we're glad she did mm-hmm. um a couple of other things I want to talk about, and I'm glad you touched on uh, women's record because uh, I, I was – that's exactly where I was going, and I, I hoped you would talk about it. Since this is uh, uh, Women's History Month, um, and there were some other things now that we take for granted as part of society that weren't as common back then, things like – Oh gosh, uh, white wedding dresses and oh. Christmas trees. And c- can you talk a little bit about some of those sure. other more arcane subjects? Yeah. Well, um, this is kind of fun. Yeah. It, it her, she also was a, a taste maker. Um, uh, and she used the pages of Godey's ladies book, um, to, uh, both teach her readers um, how to um, do things. Like, as I, I think I mentioned, she was the first editor to publish recipes. And uh, she did that by asking her friends for recipes and publishing recipes of, from her own family as well. But uh, she... Uh, uh, 
would promote things that caught her eye, such as the white wedding gown. She was a great fan of Queen Victoria, and Queen Victoria was married in white, which was unusual uh, back then. She was married in 1840, I think. Hale wrote about it and uh, then started publishing drawings of of white wedding gowns and writing about um, uh, white wedding gowns. And before you knew it, in the 1850s, the white wedding gown had become very popular. Similarly with the Christmas tree, that also could be traced back to Queen Victoria. Hale published a picture of Victoria and Albert and their kids standing around uh, a Christmas tree at Windsor Palace. But she didn't, uh, she adapted the picture. She didn't say that it was originally, when it was published in England, that it was originally Victor and Albert. Instead, she took the tiara off of Victoria's head and uh, in, in a modern version of photo, an old fashioned version of uh, photoshopping. And she eliminated um, Albert's whiskers because Hale hated whiskers on men and just presented this as a drawing of a typical American family uh, with their Christmas tree. And as I say, Christmas trees began to catch on. Uh, She did that with a lot of other things as well. Um, Because the readership was so large, what she published had an influence on uh, a wider influence on society. Um, This was, of course, after she died. But, uh, you know, uh, the Little House in the Prairie books by Laura Ingalls Wilder, who wrote them as um, memories of growing up on the prairies in the 1860s or so. And there's uh, in one of the Little House books, there's uh, an anecdote about uh, uh, the older sister going off to college and um, uh, Ma is making her wardrobe for uh, her college years and doesn't know whether to make her dresses um, uh, to fit around hoops or not. Are hoops coming back into style? She just doesn't know what to do. So what do they do? They go off and find a copy of Godey's Ladies Book, and uh, that gives them the answer. That's amazing. Uh, and and you, you spell this out so uh, well uh, in your book. You say, Hale is what we would call today an opinion leader. She identified, examined, and publicized issues she thought her readers needed to know. She didn't just report on cultural attitudes. She helped shape them. I think that's a, a, a wonderful encapsulation of the kind of influence she had with her pen. And so, uh, Melanie, as we, as we kind of round the bend here, the, the whole concept of our show here is to kind of take these lessons from uh, people from throughout history, lessons that we think are timeless. What do you think is the major takeaway for us about Sarah Josepha Hale and how we can apply it today? Here's a lesson for today. We talked a little bit about this earlier. Um, she was very civil. She took on these very controversial topics, such as educating women. And she was persistent. She lined up her arguments, but she never um, um, was accusatory or vulgar or nasty. 
she didn't, she wasn't a name caller. And I think that her belief in civil discourse um, is something that uh, we could we could take a big lesson from today. No so, doubt. I mean, it sounds like she she understood the power of the pen, that she was able to wield a lot of influence with it, but she also knew that it could be cutting as well, and she was careful not to uh, kind of go that route. She was careful um, not to be accusatory. She wanted to draw people in. Um, she was tough. And uh, she was no wimp. She was tough. But uh, she um, uh, wanted to persuade her readers. I'll give you one more. There are so many examples, but there are, one example of this is in the 1850s, she um, supported women, single women, being missionaries abroad. And the missionary societies the, of the Protestant denominations would have n- none of this. They wanted to send only married women overseas. But she persevered, and uh, by the 60s, by the 1860s and maybe 70s, um, uh, she won. And off women were going uh, as single women without husbands to uh, serve as missionaries. That's just one small example, but it was typical of the kind of approach that she took. A true lady in her approach, no doubt. Well, the book is Lady Editor, Sarah Josepha Hale and the Making of the Modern American Woman. The author is Melanie Kirkpatrick. Melanie, thank you so much for being with us on Timeless Leadership today. Thank you, Scott, uh, and all the best. It was great fun talking to you about my favorite editor, or excuse me, my favorite editress. By all accounts, Sarah Josepha Hale was a remarkable woman of outsized influence. If we take to heart the way she was able to transform the world around her, we too can make an impact on the people we care about. Thank you for joining us and for being an advocate for timeless and principled leadership whenever and wherever you find it. I'm Scott Monty. Until next time, may you dream more, learn more, do more, and become more. For you are a leader.